Pay attention, focus, listen carefully. These are phrases many of us hear as far back as we can remember. Attention has been defined as the behavioural and cognitive process of selectively concentrating on a distinct aspect of information while ignoring other perceivable information. It's a critical area of investigation within sectors including education, psychology and neuroscience, to name just a few. Dr Anthony Harris is a recipient of an ARC Discovery Early Career Researcher Award here at the Queensland Brain Institute and, it's fair to say, an expert on attention. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. I'd like to start by asking what it actually means from a scientific point of view to give something our full attention. What exactly is going on in the brain when this happens? Thanks for having me here, Rebecca. It's an interesting question because attention is a number of things, but in essence, it tends to be just like the colloquial definition of attention. It's a focus on one thing and a pulling away from other things. So it's a, in the brain, it's the enhancement of some information while suppressing information that isn't relevant so that the things that we're trying to focus on come to dominate the brain activity. Uh, and that way we're able to focus on what matters and hopefully keep from getting distracted by what doesn't. So how does attention differ from something like awareness and how do these two things interact in the brain? They certainly interact. So the things we become aware of tend to be the things that we pay attention to, but also they're not completely linked in that things we're not paying attention to can intrude on our awareness. For instance, if the door behind you was to slam at this moment, you would jump even though you're not paying attention to it right now. You're listening to me talk. And so they're difficult things to disentangle because they both seem to be similar in the brain in that sort of one thing comes to dominate. You, you're aware of you know, one thing that you're paying attention to and you're not aware of other things going on around you for the most part. If you're reading a book, you're aware of the words on the page and usually not what's sort of drifting around you, like in the room around you, for instance, not too aware of it. And so it becomes difficult to tease those apart, but we're doing our best. There are some researchers who believe that attention and awareness are the same thing, and there are others who don't. So based on that, if I was looking for something and I walked into a room and I knew that I need to put my focus on finding that object, how does my brain compute these things? How do I focus in on trying to find that particular object? What things does it look for? That's something I've done a lot of work on. So let's say the example I use with undergraduate students when they come and do our studies is, you know, you go into your bedroom, you're looking for your lucky red shirt, I know your clothes are all over the floor because you're an undergraduate student. And the way that your brain tries to achieve this task is you don't look at everything in the room just going, that's not it, that's not it, that's not it, that's a lamp, that's not a t-shirt. You know that what you're looking for is red. And so your brain starts to enhance the properties of the object you're looking for to bias that competition. So this information hitting your senses, in this case your eyes, is the same, whether you're paying attention to, oh, you're looking for a red shirt or a blue hat or whatever, it's all the same information hitting your eyes. It's just what the brain does with that information. And to achieve this task more efficiently, it'll enhance properties that it knows to be goal relevant, such as, in this case, red. And you will look just among the red things in the room till you find your t-shirt. 
A lot of people describe themselves as excellent multitaskers. What's your take on this? Is it really possible to divide your attention up and still manage to tick all the boxes and achieve all of your set goals? Definitely not. (laughs) Um, No, multitasking is a myth. We often feel like we can multitask because there's a few things going on. One is we're happy to just downplay mistakes that we make. So you're trying to do two things at once and you don't do them quite as well as you otherwise would if you were doing them one at a time. But, you know, it feels like you can do it. It's not too bad. So people say that they can multitask. But at the same time, what what's really going on is that you're switching from one task to another. And people become very uh, trained at certain tasks and at making certain switches. So you end up with situations where it feels like you can do both at once because you get very good at switching from this task to that task, these two specific particular tasks. And that leads people to feel like, oh, I'm a great multitasker because you're great at switching between those two things. But really, you're just doing one at a time. And if there were any other things, like driving and using your phone, you would not be switching between them very well at all. And you're just as bad at multitasking as everybody else. It's multitasking is a dangerous and pernicious myth. (laughs) I was afraid that you would say that. So what can you tell me about the involvement you've had in terms of the design and construction of driverless cars? How does attention research feed into that particular area? I feel like it's being a bit generous to me to say that I've had input in the design of driverless cars. But to clarify, I did a postdoc over in London at UCL in collaboration with one of the car companies over there working on tracking human attention in the interaction between humans and self-driving cars. So when we think of self-driving cars, we typically think of what's in the industry called stage five autonomy, which is you hop in a little bubble and tell it where you want to go and it takes you there. But we're a long way away from that. And before we get there, there are various stages that the industry is trying to go through to sort of, you know, take more bite-sized pieces. The stage that they're working towards at the moment is stage three autonomy, where the car can drive itself in certain situations, but the human has to drive the car in less predictable situations. So you might drive the car to the highway, then you turn on the automation, the car drives itself, it changes lanes, it slows down for roadworks, it does all of those things on the highway where everything is very predictable. And then it gives you an alert when you come to the exit and it's time for you to take over and start driving through the suburbs again. And so the focus of my project was on looking at research on how to track whether a human is likely to detect that signal that it's their turn to take over driving soon. So based on the tasks that you might be doing in the car, how much of your attention they kind of soak up by, let's say, your doing shopping on the internet or you're playing a game on your phone or you're reading a book, some of these things might be more engrossing than others and lead you to respond more slowly or maybe miss entirely the cue that says it's time for you to take over. And the car needs to know this so it doesn't just turn off the automation when you haven't noticed that it's your turn to drive. And were there particular activities that were more of a distraction to people, harder to draw their attention back on that particular cue from? Well, it was semi-applied work. So it's hard to really put your finger on that because we were the semi in that is we were doing simplified laboratory-based tasks in the car or in, in the lab and then assuming a translation to the car, but we also did some in the car. 
we're able to control the attentional requirements of the task. So we can have a task where everything is matched in the presentation on the screen and everything you've got to do, but in one condition, it's much more attentionally difficult. Uh, let's say the task we used in the main experiment was you're searching among some T's and L's on the screen and each T and each L is made up of a blue portion and a green portion. Either the vertical is blue and the horizontal is green or vice versa, right? So it's not really real life, but it lets us control things because we can say in one condition, look for the L's. Nice and easy. L's are easy to find. You know what they look like. In the other condition, look for the L with the green bottom and the blue vertical and the T with the blue horizontal and the green vertical, but not the other ones. So it's really, really difficult that you're looking, say, for the, the T with the green horizontal, but not the T with the blue horizontal and another L as well in that combination. So the exact same stimuli can produce vastly different attentional requirements. And in this way, we can control the stimuli and everything else going on and just vary the attentional requirements. So it's not exactly the same as the real life situations, but it lets us be much more confident in our conclusions because of the control we had. We did do a range of surveys, uh, well, in this wasn't my work, but in the project, where a range of surveys uh, on sort of what tasks people were likely to be performing in the car, and they tended to be the ones that I mentioned, which are all fairly engrossing, say, games on your phone and things. If you're playing Angry Birds, you're not gonna be paying attention to the road. <laughs> So I understand you're currently examining oscillations and changes in brain waves. Have you made any interesting findings there and why is this something you're looking into? Yeah, so I've been working on neural oscillations for about seven or eight years now across a range of different jobs. And the one I was just talking about in the car was also had the EEG cap on people and we're looking at whether we can measure their attentional involvement in a task by their brain waves as well as their eye tracking and things. And now I'm back here at QBI doing more basic attention work on neural oscillations, measuring waves in the brain, looking into how neural oscillations and particularly where you are in the brain wave. Uh, neural oscillation is a wave in brain activity. We've known about them for about 100 years now. But I'm focused on whether, you know, if you're at the peak of that wave or the trough of the wave, how that affects the processing of what you're trying to do. So I've done some work on vision where we've found that if you're trying to detect, you know, brief stimuli flashing up on the screen, you're much more likely to see them at the trough of that wave than you are at the peak because that wave seems to be producing some sort of regular inhibition in the visual system. But also, you know, there's one rhythm that we found seemed to relate to perception itself. It didn't matter where the stimulus was, that wave was involved. And there's another wave that seemed to be preferentially involved with attention, such that if you were paying attention to one place, that wave had more of an effect on stimuli that where you weren't paying attention than where you were. So there seems to be multiple rhythms going on and interacting in ways that bring about perception and attention effects a little bit separately. And more recently, I've been doing work on how that interacts with eye movements because your eye movement system is intimately interlinked with your attention system. There are theories out there that suggest it's by no means 
a finished topic, but there are theories that suggest that our ability to pay attention out in the world, sort of, you know, I can look at you but be listening to a conversation going on over there, that this ability sort of grew out of our eye movement system, that because we need to move our eyes, we need to be able to pay attention where they're about to land to make sure they land in the right place. So our attention would shift and then our eyes would move. From this, the suggestion has been is our ability to just move our attention without moving our eyes came about. And so because of the intimate links between attention and eye movements, I've been extending this work, my previous work on attention, to looking at how these waves interact with your ability to move your eyes and to control where you're going to move your eyes. And the timing of your eye movement seems to ride very similar waves to the attentional wave, but not the perceptual wave that we measured in the previous task. Interesting. We have obviously got so many distractions available to us these days, especially when it comes to technology. Is there any secret to becoming better at focusing our attention in this type of environment? Can you somehow train your brain to be better at focusing? It's... That's the multi-billion dollar question, quite literally. Brain training apps and brain training tasks are a big, big money. Unfortunately, the literature for the most part suggests that it's not that they don't work, it's just that their effects don't generalize. So what we, what we want is to train on something, let's say an app, and that to make us better everywhere else. You don't care about finding the apples on the tree or whatever the app game is. You care about being better, you know, when you're driving, when you're talking to your friends, whatever, focusing on what you're meant to be focusing on. The unfortunate thing is the training apps don't seem to transfer. It seems like you get better at what you practice. So you get better at the apps and that's about it. The other side of that, though, is that there are things you can do to improve your attentional performance in a range of areas. And it's not so much about boosting your attention per se. It's about having some awareness of the things that tend to distract you. So rather than focusing on boosting your attention, focus on not getting distracted. Put your phone away. You know, don't have the TV on if you're trying to work. You know, if you're with a friend and you should be paying attention to the conversation, have your phone away or don't be listening into that conversation over there like the example I just used. <laughs> Pay attention consciously and deliberately to the things you're meant to be paying attention to. And in that sort of vein, it's where things like uh, mindfulness meditation have shown some suggestions that they might enhance people's attention not because they necessarily boost your ability to attend, but just because they train you in controlling your attention, which is where we often fall down. So perhaps doing 5, 10, 15 minutes of meditation every day is probably the best way rather than some fancy you know, gimmicky app to be someone who is much better at paying attention. It might be. I've never been very good at it myself, so I can't speak from firsthand experience. But it's, for people, there's a circular issue, right? For people it works for, it seems to work great. Are those people people who were always going to be better at attention? Maybe. So the literature is a little bit mixed on the topic, but it does seem to be the thing that is, if you want a training type of thing, that seems to be the best. But I think it's much simpler just to put your phone away, personally. <laughs> I'm curious about what drew you to this area of study. I know you've described yourself as someone who likes a puzzle, but what was it about attention research specifically that really appealed to you? Well, 
in all honesty, I, I just kind of fell into it. I started out studying psychology, and like many people who decide to study psychology, I wanted to go into clinical practice, counseling, and things like that. Um, and then at the end of my second year of undergraduate studies, I did a summer research project just out of curiosity, and it didn't work out at all. Uh, it was not an attention project, uh, but it was doing human fear conditioning, giving people electric shocks and seeing how that affects their memory. And they were meant to come back for three sessions and they didn't know they only got shocks in the first session. So most people got their shocks in the first session, they never came back. Unbeknownst to them, they wouldn't have had any more shocks, but never mind. So the study was a dismal failure, but I fell in love with doing research and the process of it and the conversations you have about what might be going on. It was a lot of fun. And so when the next opportunity came up in my third year, there was a chance to do a research course. My grades were pretty good, so I was allowed to do the course. And there was an attention project going on. And it just I had a chat with the professor who was running it, uh, Professor Roger Remington. And we hit it off, and the topic was interesting. And so I just I fell into it and have been doing it ever since because the puzzles are endless. There's, there's a lot we don't know about attention, and it's it's just a fascinating topic. It's so relevant to many parts of our lives. Obviously, you've got your current study about the neural oscillations. Is there anything else on the horizon that you're really interested in sinking your teeth into when it comes to attention research? Yeah, there is. So the other main thing I have worked on as a number of side projects now um, is statistical learning and how that interacts with attention. So it's still... Everything I do falls under the umbrella of attention because attention is involved in everything. But I've done a range of studies now, kind of on the side, where we're looking at how you sort of implicitly or incidentally pick up the statistics of your environment around you. So if we give you an experiment and we say, you know, it's a search experiment like many of mine are, find the T among the L's or whatever, and you don't know but there is statistical regularities built into the task. Let's say the target is more likely to appear in one corner of the screen than elsewhere, or on half the displays, it's a limited set of distractors repeated again and again and again, 60 times throughout the experiment. People don't notice that these regularities are occurring. If we ask them if they saw anything, they look at us very confused. And then we ask them to pick the repeated displays or the non-repeated displays, and they can't do it. Nonetheless, they get better and better at the repeated task versus a balanced or matched non-repeated task. And so we're very curious about why this, seemed, why this is the case. And there's been numerous examples. I use a search task because it's what I'm familiar with, but there are numerous examples in the literature of people just seem to absorb the statistics of the things going on around them. If they attend to them, it seems to help, but they seem to absorb them anyway, even if they don't, to a lesser extent. And so that's where I really want to start sinking my teeth into as a separate issue. But having just got this grant to work on oscillations, I'll probably stick with that for a few years. Would you describe yourself as a particularly attentive person? As a child, were you someone who found themselves with a real laser focus when it came to your interests or to schoolwork? No. <laughs> um, I suspect I may have had undiagnosed ADHD. I was as a child and still am to some extent someone who 
quite regularly switches from one thing to another, with things perhaps being unfinished before I switch. And, you know, you just, I've made it work for me. I, there was a point when I was still in undergrad and I was just working in a lab to make a little bit of money on the side. And my professor said, so how many projects have you got going on at the moment? How long will it take to get this one done? And I stopped and I counted on my fingers and I had nine separate experiments on the go at once. And I wasn't a full-time researcher. And I thought, hmm, this is a problem. And that tends to be how I go. I just do a bit of this and a bit of that here and there. And if there's enough of them, then things will consistently get finished uh, all the time. There'll be something finishing up and I'll continue to put out work. But it's always a challenge to... You've got to learn to say no to things. And everything is fascinating and interesting. You don't want to say no to collaborations and new experiments. But when you have potentially undiagnosed ADHD, you have to learn to say no. (laughs) Given how much work you do in this area, are you sort of seeing that it is a topic that's becoming more and more popular? Are there a lot of industries that are very interested in this type of research? Because obviously it could benefit their clients or their bottom line, let's face it. And if so, what sort of sectors are you seeing take much more of an interest in this type of work? Absolutely. It's it's definitely an area of research that is relevant to a lot of different sort of commercial sectors, let's say. The ones I'm most familiar with because they tie in most closely with my work are things like the automotive sector, obviously. Uh, attention research is used a lot in things like cockpit design in airplanes, or there's a lot of work on how people search for and uh, attend to targets in things like airline baggage screening. So what happens if your target is very, very rare and you get used to not finding a target? Do you notice the knife going through the baggage screener, for instance? Or the same thing happens with, you get similar kinds of problems with radiologists looking for, say, cancer in breast scans, for instance. They're somewhat rare, they often look quite different, and often if you find one, you'll miss other ones that are going on because you're used to finding just one, for instance. So these are all areas of attention research. It's also incredibly relevant to areas like advertising and such. What's going to grab your attention? How do we balance our attention in the world such that you know, we we want to be doing a task. We want to be just walking down the street without bumping into anything, getting where we want to go, whereas the advertisers want to draw your attention away from whatever you're doing. So you look at their billboard, for instance. And these are all aspects of attention. As the world evolves and we have, like I said earlier, so many distractions on our plate on any given day, generations ago, we wouldn't have had that much. We've now got countless ways to lose attention from a task. Do you think as that technology develops that we will evolve to just adjusting to all of those distractions or is it just from what you've learned in your studies not possible really to become a more evolved attention payer to things? You know, looking right back into the days of early man where really they had to pay attention to predators. There wasn't really that much that they had to think about compared to today. Were they better at paying attention than what we are, do you think? I mean, 
there's really no way to know, right? We have, I haven't been able to get sort of Cro-Magnon man to sit at my computer <laughs> and do my search tasks. It's very difficult. <laughs> it's just, he doesn't press the buttons right. But it's a tricky thing because we can, there's kind of two answers, right? So one is that you don't want to be able to focus too well, right? Back on this, you know, in the Pleistocene, people were out scavenging for food, but you want to notice sort of the lion creeping up on you, for instance, right? So you don't want to focus too well because you don't want to miss the important things that are going on around you that you do need to be aware of, even though they're not your current goal. So it's beneficial to have a system that can pay attention to some things, but can also be you know, we call it distracted now because it doesn't suit us, but it's something that happens to us because it's biologically useful for your attention to break from what it's doing and shift to the other thing that might be relevant. It might be more relevant than what you're doing now. You don't want to get locked into a task to the point where you can never stop. So that's one part of the answer. Right, And that's always going to be a balancing act. You want to be able to focus, but you don't want to focus too much. And the other part of the answer is humans have a lot of ingenuity and advertisers have a lot of ingenuity. And no matter how, you know, evolution's a slow process. Mm. And no matter how that changes or shifts, it only takes one generation for us to figure out how, like, how best to capture your attention in this new way. If you get good at ignoring advertising, it's very easy for an advertiser to switch up their game and figure out a new way to distract you. So I don't think it's something that's likely to change. We're not going to evolve out of it because it is a useful thing. If you're reading a book and your baby wakes up, you want to notice that your baby's crying. Speaking of babies and children, here's a million-dollar question for you. How do you get your children to pay attention on the first time that you ask them to do a particular task? You don't. <laughs> you never will. I'm sorry. <laughs> kids are kids. Children haven't developed their attentional control yet. So one aspect of attention that is very important is how you control it, how you choose what you're going to pay attention to, and how you weigh up the importance of different things to focus on what really matters right now. Um, but children have different priorities to adults. And so the things that really matter to them are different than what really matter to us. And so their attention is going to focus on things that are not what we necessarily think they should. And it's also just harder for them to switch what they're attending to it's harder for them to control what they attend to because of their poorly developed attentional control skills. And so the child who, they're playing a video game or, you know, if you're lucky, reading a book and you say their name numerous times and they don't respond and so you say it again and you say it again and then you yell and they say, oh, you don't have to shout, I didn't hear you. And you're like, I've said your name so many times, how could you not hear me? Well, that's what attention does. It selects some things that are important and filters out the rest. And their attention was very focused on one thing and what was going on around them, your voice was getting filtered out. They literally don't hear you. It's called inattentional deafness. We also have inattentional blindness where if you're focused on one thing, you don't see other things that are relevant. This is just an, un I wouldn't even say unfortunate. This is just a consequence of how the system works. And so there really is 
there's no magic bullet to get your kids to pay attention and to avoid these problems. So that last concept, is that sort of where you'll be maybe driving and you won't see someone, oh, they came out of nowhere and you literally just didn't see what was going on? Is that, is that sort of an example of what's happening there? Absolutely. So this is... It is the leading cause of motorcycle accidents where, at least in the UK, it's called a looked but didn't see accident, where motorcyclists will be going down the road, a car will pull out in front of them and they'll hit, and the motorcyclist will say, they looked right at me. And the driver says, I didn't see them. And it's the driver is looking for a car. And so they, their attention is set for a car and they don't see the motorcycle that's coming. It's not the same size. It's not the same shape. It doesn't fit their template, so they don't see it. Well, Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you today and learn more about attention, something that I know you've described as fundamental to being human. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Rebecca. If you'd like to learn more or support the work that we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. 